0: This uh, this clip is hilarious to me. This movie, uh, especially in this beginning one in, in Toy Story one, they just wrestle with this reality of Woody the cowboy trying to come to grips with uh, the the value that he once had, kind of somebody else stepping in, and and this is kind of what we're talking about today. I think the reality is that we all have uh, these issues, these challenges, these these. Uh, Things in our lives that we wish weren't there. Uh, you may have things in someone else's life that you wish weren't there. And if it helps, you can just kind of whisper their name under your breath quietly. Just kind of let the steam off. Uh, but we've been in this series uh, called Seven. And it's funny because, I've, well, I think it's funny. It's summer and it's bright outside, and, and we're going to talk about the seven deadly sins because this is just the summeriest thing that we could do. It's like lemonade and ice cream trucks and the seven deadly sins. Uh, but But when we started this series, we kind of started it with this foundation of understanding that the most important thing to know about ourselves is not that we are sinful, broken people like some of us grew up in churches or homes where that was the message communicated, shame, guilt, sinfulness. The most important and defining thing about you is that you are loved and valuable, that God has pursued you and pursued a relationship with you. And so we talked about this, and actually we spent an entire series talking about this, and then week one of this series we talked about it again because it's almost a message that nobody hears. But it's so important for us to start from that place first because when we are confident that God loves us, when we are confident that he's accepted us, when we're confident that uh, he already sees value in us and he saw it when we were at our lowest and his love for us can't be affected, then all of a sudden we can start to talk about things like sin that many of us, we have this kind of knee-jerk reaction of like, I don't want to talk about sin because this word may have been used kind of as a weapon in some of our lives and in some of our experiences. But we can talk about sin and, and we don't have to feel nervous about shame or guilt or judgment because as we put our trust in Jesus, sin has no more uh, effect, no more, uh, it doesn't define who we are anymore. We are experiencing freedom and the power that comes along with putting our trust in Jesus. And so then we get to say, okay, well, now that I know I'm loved, now that I know I have value and that God has accepted me, I can look at these things that have always caused me shame or guilt or fear and I can look at them objectively and say, well, how can I address these things so they stop disrupting my life? Because I put my trust in Jesus. I understand that that hell is not not on the table anymore. I've, I've put my trust in him, but these sins are still getting in the way of our relationships. And so we talked about the reality that these uh, were called, you know, thousands of years ago, these these became known as the seven deadly sins. Uh, they're these seven words that you may be familiar with. Pride, envy, wrath, sloth, greed, lust, and gluttony, which is my personal favorite. Uh, and uh, they're these words. And For so many of us, myself included, up until I started studying and trying to be prepared for this series, I kind of just thought that this talked about the individual times that we would be prideful, or that I would be slothful, or that I would be overly gluttonous, or whatever it would. I thought it was about these individual instances where I crossed a line that I shouldn't have crossed. But the seven deadly sins were, this list was created because these people called the Desert Fathers, they realized that these are seven categories or seven vices or seven uh, habits that plague us in specific ways throughout our lives. And not all of us have all of these as struggles. Usually there's one that is a vice for us that we feel like we can never get away from. But most of us, because we have Some issues. Uh, We all have experienced these things in different ways. And so maybe you're here today and there's one that you're like, that's mine, I know what it is, and I hope we don't talk about it today. Uh, Maybe you're not totally sure. Maybe you feel like, I I feel like I could check all of those boxes in my life. Whether this is something that is a lifelong challenge for you and, and kind of a world that you live in, or whether this is just something that you experience with, the hope of these conversations is to realize that because of our standing in God and his acceptance and love for us, we can start to address these things. Instead of trying to hide the symptoms and manage the symptoms so everybody thinks that we've got it all together, we can say, you know what? I struggle with this. And I know it doesn't change my standing with God, so I'm gonna start addressing the root of this so I can find more and more freedom in my life. Today, we are talking about envy. Uh, everybody loves the idea of talking about envy. Uh, And I think that as we talk about these things, most of the definitions, they don't surprise us. Uh, Envy is discontentment or a resentful longing with what you have compared to someone else's possessions or qualities. It's a desire for something that's possessed or displayed by another person and the accompanying pain that you yourself don't have it. Does that feel like accurate to what you kind of assumed envy was? It's like, That's not that bizarre of a definition, like, yeah, we get it. We have to talk about this for a whole day. Um, Yeah, we do. Uh, And I've got hours worth of content here, so buckle up. No. Uh, But one of the things I think is important is to realize that envy and jealousy, we use these words kind of interchangeably, but they're actually different things. Envy is when you want something that you don't have. Jealousy has to do with something that you already have. That's why people would say that uh, someone would be a jealous spouse or a jealous husband because they don't want anyone else to have the thing that they feel like they have. Envy has to do with these things that we don't have but we long for. And there's kind of two steps of envy. The first one that I think is kind of easy for some of us to admit, yeah, I I deal with that, is called benign envy. And it's essentially the desire to have the object of another person. So they have something, I want that thing, and I believe that when I get it, I will not be envious anymore, which isn't true, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is kind of benign envy. It's like I see something that I want. I told you guys a story a couple months ago. One of my friends got my dream car. It's a Jeep Wrangler, uh, and I want it. Very badly, uh, and it was a real problem in our front. No, I'm just kidding, but there was this. There was this thing for me. I used to have a Jeep Wrangler. Somebody totaled it. I've just wanted one ever since. And so he shows up in this brand new Jeep Wrangler, and there was this part of me that was like oh, I gotta get one of those again. Like, I just, I need that thing, I I need it in my life. So benign envy is something that we desire what someone else has, and we think that when we get it, that feeling will go away. There's a second step that is much more uh, dark. It's malicious envy. Essentially, it wants the object that another person has, but it also uh, wants the other person to not have it. It's this malicious idea that not only do I want it and I probably deserve it, But also, they don't deserve it. They shouldn't have it. And let me tell you something that's how I feel when I see people driving Jeep Wranglers. Not everybody. If you're a grown adult and you've bought your Jeep Wrangler, that's fine. But I see these like 16 year olds driving around in a Jeep Wrangler, they don't deserve that. I deserve that. I have kids. I'm a, I've, you know, I've, I've put some work in. They're driving these Jeep Wranglers that are perfectly clean and shiny. You know, that's not what a Jeep Wrangler is for. It should be filthy. You should be driving that thing in the dirt. They have the doors on. You know those come off, right? They come off for, they, the door, every single thing about this in me, it's like not only that I want one, but also it's like, you don't deserve that. You shouldn't have that. There's this malicious aspect. And so we're just going to pray for me today. Uh, no, but, uh, but envy, it sneaks up on us, and it's almost impossible to, to avoid because it's fueled by comparison. And today in 2019 with TV and social media and billboards and commercials and, and everything, literally everything around us is encouraging comparison. And so envy is everywhere around us. And there was a study that was done um, a few years back. It was this Dutch scientist, and he was trying to study the effects of of envy and jealousy and and unfairness and some of these types of things. And so, like like it seems like they always do, they, they decided, well... To learn about humans, let's try this on monkeys, uh, which is encouraging and kind. But uh, it's interesting. So they have these monkeys. They give them a task, and monkeys love cucumbers, so they give the cucumbers to the monkeys as a reward. But then after a while, they start giving one monkey grapes. And if you're anything like my 8-year-old, you know that grapes are way better than cucumbers. Uh, But this video is kind of hilarious, so check this out. I mean, how many of you guys see like a little bit of yourself in that monkey, right? It's like, yeah, I've been there before. Uh, I've been given a vegetable and reacted by shaking the cage, you know. But there's this reality for us that we do some of these same things, the things that once were totally fine. We were totally happy getting the cucumber. We were totally happy with the paycheck that we had, with the relationship that we had, with the car that we drive, with the whatever it is. And then we see somebody else get something, it's like, well... I don't want this anymore, I want what they have. And nothing changed. The work that we were putting in didn't change, the stuff that we had didn't change, the relationship didn't change, our bank account. It's just that we saw that somebody else had something that we felt like we deserved, that we wanted. And I think that we all struggle with this, but we mostly wouldn't use the word envy in our lives. But if I were to ask, have you ever been discontent because of what other people have? I think most of us would raise our hands. I think most of us would be like, yeah, that's happened for sure. Some of you guys, that is almost like a way of life. Not that you want it to be that way, but you feel constantly attacked by what other people have. This is what a vice is. This is the, the deadly sins that we, we wrestle with, we struggle with. Part of what makes envy so deadly is that we don't really take it that seriously. I mean, we saw the list of the deadly sins, pride, gluttony, like all these things, lust. Envy seems kind of like slow pitch. It's like, I mean, it's not that bad. Comparatively, it's not that bad. But it's kind of crazy because envy is literally the only one in this category. It's the only one of the seven deadly sins that gives us no pleasure at all. Every one of these things has long-term negative consequences, but they all give us some sort of momentary, instantaneous uh, relief. Some little bit of like, you know, when you sit down like I did with friends Friday night at this amazing Thai restaurant, and you ordered family style for like seven families, uh, and you just continued eating because you didn't want it to go to waste. You know, there's this moment where it's like, oh, that was so worth it, and then Saturday morning when I woke up, it was like, ah, it was not worth it. You know, envy is never feels good. Nobody has, I've never felt better about myself when I see a high schooler driving a Jeep and feel like I want to run them off the, I'm just kidding. But there's this, it never feels good. And so there's a reality with envy in our lives that it's much more toxic than we imagined. It affects far more of us than we know. And it goes way deeper than we would ever believe. In 2009, there was a, a scientific study, this time it was on people, not monkeys, um, but they, they had these people, these individuals, and they confronted them with enviable scenarios, enviable situations, enviable people, and they said, just raise your hand whenever you start to feel envy in these, these scenarios we tell you about. And here's what they, they found when people would acknowledge that they were feeling different levels of envy. It says, the brain regions involved in registering physical pain were triggered. The higher the subjects rated their envy, the more vigorously the pain nodes flared in the brain's dorsal, anterior, cingulate, cortex, and related areas, which you all know what areas those are. Uh, No, I, I put those in there so you didn't think I was just making this thing up. Literally, envy causes our brain to experience pain. It's not just this thing of like, oh, I wish I had what they had. When we envy people, not only is there a spiritual component that we'll talk about, it literally hurts you. Not in a metaphorical sense. Your brain feels it as pain. Everything about this causes challenges for us. The mantra, the the saying of envy, the belief, the core question is, why not me? but it's never the object that the envier is after. It's the worth or the honor or the standing that it gives them. The envious don't necessarily want what you have. They want how they think it makes you feel. It's not that they want the job that you have, although they might, it might be a nice job. It's not that they want the bonus, although everybody likes bonuses. It's that there's something happening. They they see that it, They believe it makes you feel a certain way and there's something inside of an envious person that causes them, it drives them to long for whatever that feeling might be and they probably don't even know what it is but there's a sense of they have that thing and I want to feel the way that they feel. If we were to have this conversation about the Jeep Wrangler, besides it being the coolest vehicle one could drive, if we started to get down to it, it would probably be that it's not actually about just how great that car is, it would probably have more to do with remembering the freedom that I felt when I had one. And if we continued asking questions, we would also realize that Chris was like 60 pounds lighter and didn't have kids and all these other things. But there's this, there's a feeling of, man, if I could afford that, that would, that would mean something. Man, if I could feel the, the experience of that, there's these feelings that we're looking for. It's rarely the object. Envy has to do with the sense of value that an individual has because they feel that something is missing in who they are or the way that they are now. When they see others achieve or succeed or accomplish something, it causes them to feel a a sense of shame or a sense of lack. Uh, One textbook definition, it it describes it this way. It says, people can envy the happiness or sense of comfort which others seem to have. You don't have to raise your hand if this is you, but we know. They instantly spot who has a more interesting life, a happier family or childhood story, a better job, superior taste, a more privileged education, more distinguished clothes, or unrivaled artistic talent. And this envy begins to create a sense of irredeemable deficiency. And it launches them on a quest to fill that deficiency with something. And they think that these things will fill it. Ultimately, we know that there is a spiritual component to this, that these things will never be able to, to fill. But it, it creates this sense of deficiency in a person. The root of this is that we want to outshine others because our self-esteem depends on it. And so if you analyze who you envy, you'll discover how you define your identity, the essence of what you make thinks. Uh, what you think makes you valuable or worthy. And, and there's three kind of main categories of envy. There's probably a thousand, but there's these three main ones that many of us uh, envy triggers a lot of these uh, things. Money. We see a house that someone has. We see the car that someone has, with the clothes or the well, the whatever it might be. And, it, and there's something triggered in us that thinks, I want that. I, I, de- I deserve that. I mean, I don't know why they, why they get that car. Uh, I don't know why they have that job, that check, those clothes. I, I know how much money they make. I know what that career pays. All of a sudden, it's not only that I want that, it's that how do they even have it? They probably shouldn't. They, maybe they stole it. You know, there's a sense of like, what is it about them that they get this and I don't? A relationship or relationship status is a huge one. And it goes every direction on the family tree. It goes from people saying, well, I don't know why they ended up in a relationship before I do. I mean, look at them. You know, there's a sense of like, they're crazy. I'm normal. You know, why did they find the love of their life? There's a sense of why are their parents still together? Or why are their kids uh, still talking to them? Or or how come they have kids and I haven't been able to have kids? Which are valid desires. I, I get that, but we we see this and there's this sense of not only do I want this thing, but then I start to question if they deserve it. And it, it starts to trigger this longing, this deficiency that we have. And career is an obvious one. If you guys have ever worked in any sort of team, you have felt this sense of... I can't believe that person still has a job here. <laughs> I can't believe that person got a raise this. I mean, there's this, there's this thing that we have all experienced of like, man, I put in 30 more hours a week than that person does. I, you know, whatever it would be. We've experienced these are just a few of the main categories, but if you start to analyze who you envy, you'll discover how you define your own identity. You'll discover the essence of what you think makes a person valuable or worthy. Envious are afraid that there's not enough love or value to go around for everyone. Not everybody can be loved equally and unconditionally. So they try and be the best. They believe that being the best is the only way to, to make sure that they have the value, but we can't always be the best all the time. And so then it starts to disintegrate into, well, if I can't be the best, then let me make sure that they don't get the stuff that I want either. I want them to be just as lacking as I am, and if you're like me, then you kind of get to this point where you're like, "Man, Chris, that's pretty depressing. Uh, that's pretty dark stuff we're talking about here on July 21st. I got like a summer vacation I'm trying to get to and a barbecue, and now I just I'm a little bit sad. You know, there's a reality. This this depth is not the world that we all intentionally live in, but this is what's at the core of envy." This is unchecked. This is what it will do to your heart. This is what it will do to your relationships with others. This is at the base of it. James, uh, Jesus' half brother, he wrote about this in James chapter 3. He says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder, which disorder, no big deal. I'm a little disorganized. We'll figure that out. And then he says, Also, every evil practice. That's cool. Uh, Just all of them, if you have envy. There's something about envy that opens this door. And then he goes on in the next chapter and he says, What causes the fights and the quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight, and you don't have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is writing, he said, you know why there's tension in your life? Because there's something that you want and you don't have it. That is the basis of the tension in your life. It's a paycheck, a relationship, recognition, acceptance, whatever it is. There's something that you don't Uh, that you, you don't have and you want it and this is what's causing the tension and he's saying you desire but you don't have so you kill and maybe that's not a literal killing but there is destruction and death that begins to happen in our relationships and in our minds and in our hearts and then he goes on and he says you don't have because you don't ask God and when you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking with the wrong motives. For example, to ride this horse as long as I can. I don't think that God has given me a Jeep yet (laughs) because he knows that I don't want it for the right reasons. I want to show all those high school... No, I'm just kidding. There's this reality that the things we ask for, the things that we want, which might be great things, maybe it is a relationship or kids or a family or, or more money or a new car or whatever it is, they're not bad things, but the reason you want them is because you think that that will mean that you matter. You want it because you think it will mean that you now have value, that you now have worth, that you can be respected. And why would God give you that? Because he knows that you can only have value in him. And that if you can't recognize the acceptance and the worth that he puts in you, then you're not gonna find it in a Jeep Wrangler or a paycheck or a family or a boyfriend or a spouse or, or any of these other things. Envy escalates the darkness. It doesn't work. It won't make us happy. And to envy is to be dis- dissatisfied with and to discredit what God has already given you and who he's made you to be. It says, I'm not enough, I don't have enough, and at least I deserve what they have. Fortunately, Jesus shows us another way. And so as we've been talking about these seven deadly sins, we've been talking about the reality that, for many of us, we just try and manage the symptoms of the issues in our life. Like, let me just make sure people think that my marriage is okay. Even if it's not, let's just dress it up. Let me make sure that people think that I'm wealthy. You know, I'll save some vacation pictures and I'll just post one like every other month. That way people think I'm perpetually on vacation. You know, there's, whatever these things are, we, we, we have these ideas of how we want to kind of uh, manage the symptoms. But in Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain, he talks about the Beatitudes, which is something we may have heard of. But each of these Beatitudes, it gives us a way to address the root of the problems, So instead of just managing the symptoms of our envy and just not walking up on a stage in front of 75 people and saying that you envy your best friend's Jeep or whatever these things might be, it's an invitation to say, hey, you're loved, you're accepted, you're valuable. God cannot love you more. He cannot love you less. So what if you start addressing the root of these issues? What if you start addressing the core of the problem? It's not that you want a Jeep, it's that there's something deeper happening in your heart. It's not that you want a spouse. It's that there's something deeper. What if we started addressing these things in our lives? And so Jesus, each one of these beatitudes gives us something to focus on, to move away from these deadly sins and towards this other thing. And so in Matthew five, verse four, Jesus teaches the second beatitude. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, Jesus, not always the best motivational speaker it's like ah I'm not going to sign up for more grief uh, thanks though but there's this, there's this thing that he is doing with each one of these beatitudes that is is so important and and you can interpret these in different ways, but I think that when I hear the word mourn, I think of sadness, I think of grief, I think of a funeral of, of losing someone and being there and mourning that loss and I think that this imagery actually is helpful in a way because the point of a funeral isn't to be sad, but it's to make peace with the death of something. When something dies, you have to reassess your identity in relationship to that thing. And I think what Jesus wants us to mourn or to make peace with is the death of an illusion that we can add value to ourselves because of the things we've achieved is to mourn or to grieve the death of the idea that uh, that thing, A, will make me happy, B, will make other people love me more, C, will prove that I'm worthy or valuable of something, which we all know, if I asked you, it would be 100% like, I know that's not true, but in our hearts, we wrestle with that. And Jesus, in this beatitude, he's inviting us to mourn the death of that illusion the death of the idea that we can achieve love by our performance. The message paraphrase says it in a different way. It says that you are blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you because only then can you be embraced by the one who is most dear to you. Again, it's this idea of, man, we we hold on to these things that we think define us and give us value and are meaningful and important. And, And Jesus is saying, man, you should be happy when you have to let go of those things, because then you'll realize that there is a God that is not only with you, but he is comforting you and he is giving you value. And he's the one that defines the rules in the first place. You're blessed when you've lost something Because in that space of grief, you have the opportunity to embrace the truth of God's unsurpassable love for you. Envy is based on the lie that if you do enough of the right things well enough, you will be worthy of love. And Jesus wants us to put that in a casket. There's an invitation to grieve the loss of that belief, that facade, that that lie in our lives. Because in our mourning, we realize that God isn't far from us, and he certainly hasn't abandoned us like Caleb talked about earlier. And it's only then that we learn that the love we long for, it can't be achieved, it has to be received. Because in envy, we're constantly trying to get this thing that someone else has that we don't have because we think of how it will make us feel. And so we're trying to get this thing so we can feel a different way and get this thing so we can feel a different way. And, and the reality is, is that what we deeply long for, and if envy is your vice or if it's just something that you struggle with from time to time, what we need to know is that you cannot achieve value on your own or by getting things. It is something that God instills in you and in me. But we spend all of our time trying to outperform others and claw our way to the top and cling to the the status and the success. But we end up losing, which reminds me of Jesus' words a few chapters later in Matthew 10. He says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Another one of those zingers from Jesus. I think if you cling to your life, if you cling to the things that you think are defining you and, and giving value and making people impressed with you or, or make you feel like you're important or you're enough, you're going to lose your life because none of that stuff will give you what you need. But if you give that up, if you put that in the grave, if you mourn the loss of that perspective, then you will find a more full life than you ever could any other way, God is trying to lead us into this deep sense of value and belonging, but we won't stop trying to prove the value on our own. We struggle constantly. And so what does it look like for us? Practically, how can we, how can we begin to, to fight against this? We know that it's not just enough to say, well, I just choose to not be envious anymore because that'll keep creeping up. So we have to pursue something else. We have to pursue this, this idea that, that this is a facade and I can mourn that loss. And when I let go of those things, when I lose that thing, it actually allows me to be closer to the thing, to God, which defines the value. But practically, what does this look like? And so Henry Nowen, um I'm paraphrasing, but he, he talked about how all of humanity find themselves kind of bouncing between three very human lives uh, lies about our identity. These three lies are that I am what I have, that I am what I do, and that I am what other people think or say about me. I think every single person kind of wrestles with these lies. I am what I have, I am what I do, and I am what other people think or say about me. Uh, I, most of us would at least resonate with one of those things. And I think that this, because it has to do with identity, I think it gives us a framework to look through of like, okay, so then practically, as I leave this room today, what does it look like for me to try and put some things in place to fight against envy in my life? And so the first one, I want to use this lens, the first one is to cultivate gratitude. The second one is to fight comparison. And the third one is to pursue Jesus. To cultivate gratitude, I think it, it gives us the ability, to, it fights against this lie that I am what I have. When you cultivate gratitude, it fights against the lie that I am what I have. That We choose to see and to celebrate what God has already given us. Envy happens when we forget about how good God has already been to us. And there is no thing that will make us feel secure. And when we look for security in our stuff, we will always come up feeling empty. And so when we choose to, to cultivate gratitude, it's this decision to say, man, look at what I have, even if it's not new or the nicest or the best or the biggest or whatever it is, look at what I have, look at how much God already loves me. Look at the value, look at the way he provides. It cultivates this reality that we don't have this craving for more. So we can keep a, a gratitude journal we can put pictures or, or statements around the house in certain places, we can write scriptures down to repeat to ourselves through the day. Uh, this is one we talked about a few months ago, Proverbs 14, 30 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And I think based off of what we've already looked at, this, it's not a surprise, and it doesn't even feel like that much of an exaggeration, that envy rots the bones, it, it does something inside of us that begins to deteriorate us at the core. So what would it look like for us to be intentional about cultivating gratitude and and fighting against this lie that you are what you have? The second one is to fight comparison. I think that comparison is this idea that it causes us to think that I am what I do. And so when we fight against comparison, it fights against this lie. I heard one person say that what you do should be an expression of who you are not an attempt to prove who you are. The things that I do in my family, the things that I do in my work, the things that I do the day-to-day, it should flow out of an understanding of who I am. It should be an expression of who I am. It shouldn't be that I'm doing these things to prove to people who I am or would like to be or would like them to think that I am. It should be this reality that instead of trying to compare and live up to what others are doing, uh, we're, we're embracing the reality of who we already are. When we compare, we're trying to measure ourselves against what others have or have done. And comparison fuels envy, and so if you remove comparison, you'll starve envy. Comparison thinks in terms of er and est. If I was richer or funnier or the smartest, or the prettiest, or if my house was bigger, or my vacation was longer, or if my kids were politer, or whatever these things are. When we start to compare, it does this thing to us that we feel like leaves us lacking, like we are deficient in some way. So we cultivate gratitude, we fight comparison, Comparison's a losing game. Uh, You would assume billionaires would say these really genius things, beautiful poetic phrases. Uh, Warren Buffett, I read this quote and I just think it's hilarious. He said, you never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. Which I actually thought was a Jimmy Buffett lyric for a long time, but there's this billionaire who's then saying you never know who's swimming naked and he goes on in this interview and he talks about this reality that Everybody is standing in the water and you never know what's happening beneath the surface. And so you might look at the car, you might look at the social media feed, you might look at the new clothes and it's like, man, how do they have it? I want what they have. They've got the best life in the world and you don't realize that all of that is getting put on credit cards. You might see the pictures of them with their spouse or their kids smiling and obviously they didn't post the picture of their kid like you know, losing it at Disneyland. It's just the perfect, it's this sense of, man, we're judging everybody else's kind of highlight reel and meanwhile, all we can think of is our blooper reel. There's this reality that we don't know what's happening underneath the surface and so comparing what you have, what you've experienced to what other people have, there's no way that you can come out on top in that scenario. The third thing is to pursue Jesus and it feels like, Just a very cliche thing to say. You can live for the approval of others or you can live from the approval of Jesus. And as we we pursue Jesus, it fights against this lie that you are what other people say or think that you are. Because the closer you get to Jesus and the more time you spend in this relationship with Jesus, the more aware you become of the way that he sees you and the value that he has for you and the love that he has for you. The more that you spend time with Jesus, the easier it is to not put stock into what other people think or say or even in kind of your own internal dialogue. Again, being a parent, there are these things where, I find myself getting frustrated or confused by the way that my kids act and I can't help but then in some moment of clarity realize that I do those same things in my spiritual life. And, and I've seen the, the time when I'm closer with my eight year old, the time when we're spending time together and hanging out one on one and I build the Legos or I go to get frozen yogurt or whatever these things are, the time when we're close together, he acts better than the busy weeks where I don't spend time with him. And in those weeks, and he would never articulate it this way, but he is trying to make sure that he is okay in those times when he feels like there's distance. Whether he's acting out, whether he's being like super energetic and just trying to like get attention, whatever it is, and in the same way as we lean into a relationship with Jesus and as we spend time reading through the scriptures and seeing the words that God believes about us, and we spend time praying and talking and listening with God, as we spend time in community and and experiencing God through other people's lives, as we lean into these things, it allows us to fight against the lie that we are what other people think or say about us. There is a decision of putting your trust in Jesus and of giving him your life, and then there is a daily interaction or a discipline of saying, okay, I'm going to continue to live in this way so that I can experience the fullness of what, what's what been promised to me. And as we lean into these these three things, I believe it can fight against these lies about our identity, and I think it can help us practically fight against envy in our own lives. The only way to embrace the truth of how God truly sees you is to pursue a relationship with him. And some of you guys may be like, I have a relationship with him. Well, what would it look like for you to step deeper into the relationship with him? To to explore spiritual growth in your life, to try new things, to take another step. Because I've been married 11 years, which isn't the longest marriage in the room. It's not the shortest marriage in the room. But I know for sure that what I gave in my marriage in year five would not work today in year 11. There is more to lean in and to build a relationship and to take more steps and to learn more about each other and figure out how how does this relationship work? And the same is true of our spiritual lives. And so as we lean into these three things, as we pursue Jesus and fight comparison and cultivate gratitude, I think that these are some practical tools that we can take outside of this room today, and figure out, okay, what does this look like for me? And what would it look like for me to continue to to do what Jesus invited us to? To live in this reality that blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. What would it look like for me to mourn the death of the, the facade, the lie, that I am what I have, I am what I do, I am what others say about me, and live in the freedom and the hope that I am what God has already said I am. I have the value and the worth and the acceptance that he's already promised me. And from that place then, I get to live my life.